Our conference concludes with a look ahead to October term 2012. The court's docket as of today is a bit sparse, but not without heft. Indeed, were it not for last term's Obamacare and SB 1070 cases, you could say that this coming term would be the term of the decade. In its first two sittings, the court will hear important cases on international law, property rights, racial preferences in higher education, and the Fourth Amendment, as well as the follow-up to the class action blockbuster from a couple of years ago, Walmart versus Dukes. Cato has filed briefs in all of these cases, as well as in several other pending cert petitions, that uh, if granted would become high profile uh, as well. Challenges to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and the scope of the treaty power, for example. And then there are the multiple looming cases relating to gay marriage and the Defense of Marriage Act. In short, if you thought you were getting a breather this year, I'm sorry to disappoint you. To discuss the term, we have Canon Shamagam, Tom Goldstein, and David Savage. Canon Shamagam, the author of this year's Looking Ahead essay in the review, is a partner at Williams and Connolly, where he focuses on uh, Supreme Court and appellate litigation. He's argued 11 cases before the Supreme Court, more than any other lawyer in the firm's history, except its legendary founder, Edward Bennett Williams, in a number of areas, including securities, antitrust, and criminal law. Born and raised in Lawrence, Kansas, go Jayhawks? Yep, absolutely. Uh, Cannon received his uh, AB from Harvard, his MLit from Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar, and his JD from Harvard, where he was uh, executive editor of the Harvard Law Review. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and Judge J. Michael Ludig on the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. He joined Williams and Connolly in 2008 after serving as an assistant to the Solicitor General. Perhaps most importantly, he's my girlfriend's boss. <laughs> Tom Goldstein is a partner at Goldstein and Russell, a Supreme Court boutique that until recently was known as Goldstein Howe and Russell. So we know that after leaving Aiken Gump, Tom's first power play was to remove his wife from the letterhead. <laughs> Tom has argued <laughs> 25 cases before the Supreme Court, spanning a broad array of issues. Besides practicing law, he teaches Supreme Court litigation at both Stan Stanford and Harvard law schools. In 2003, he, of course, founded SCOTUS Blog, which makes my job so much easier and which in 2010 became the only blog ever to receive the ABA's Silver, Silver Gavel Award for fostering the understanding of law. Among his accolades, the National Law Journal named him one of the 40 most influential lawyers of the decade. The Legal Times named him one of the 90 greatest Washington lawyers of the last 30 years. And GQ did them all one better by naming him one of the 50 most influential people in Washington. So we're really an esteemed company here. There's more. The National Law Journal twice named him one of the nation's leading lawyers under 40. The American lawyer called him one of the top 45 under 45. You see where this is going. In 50 years, we can expect the International Law Gazette or what have you to name him one of the top 100 lawyers under 100. <laughs> but, but really, he's slipping. 40 years ago, he was one of the five lawyers under five. <laughs> And finally, David Savage has been the Supreme Court correspondent for the Los Angeles Times since 1986. Working out of the paper's Washington Bureau, he's had an excellent vantage point from which to observe the high court's actions, decisions, and changes over three decades. Before taking up the court beat, David was the Times education writer based in LA. He's the author of Turning Right, The Making of the Rehnquist Supreme Court, which covered the efforts of the Reagan and first Bush administrations to remake the high court. He also writes a monthly column for the ABA Journal and offers regular legal commentary on NPR's Talk of the Nation. David, who for good or ill is not a lawyer, grew up in the Pittsburgh area and holds degrees from UNC and Northwestern. We'll start with Kent.
Well, thank you, Ilya, and it's great to be here uh, at Cato today to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court term. And I guess uh, we've already had one mystery solved because now we know why Ilya wore this very fetching suit today. He's clearly trying to follow Tom uh, in the pages of GQ. Uh, I, I, I don't think I really have much of a shot at that since evidently your suit has to be visible from outer space uh, in order to be a contender. But, uh, but in any event, and here I was thinking that I was uh, somehow privileged to be asked to write uh, the preview for the Supreme Court review this year when, in fact, I was simply asked uh, because I happened to be Ilya's girlfriend's boss. So uh, in any event, uh, notwithstanding that, it was indeed a privilege to have the chance to write uh, the preview uh, with my colleague Jamie McDonald from Williams and Connolly, uh, who uh, clerked for the Chief Justice uh, a few years ago. And uh, I certainly uh, uh, commend that to you, uh, and to the extent you find it useful, I can assure you that that's because of Jamie's good work and not because of my own. Uh, but in any event, uh, Ilya did ask me to talk about uh, the criminal docket this year, and I'll be relatively brief because, uh, at least as of now, the court's criminal docket is relatively limited. Uh, but let me just say a word, since I'm the first uh, uh, substantive speaker, about uh, the upcoming term, because I really do think that it has the potential to be a very interesting term. I think last term in many ways was a, a somewhat unusual term because perhaps never in the modern era has uh, a, a single case so dominated uh, the attention given to the court uh, as was true last term with the healthcare cases. And of course, I know you've heard uh, a little bit about that uh, over the course of today, and I suspect you'll hear a little bit more in the lecture to follow. But you know, it really was kind of one of those remarkable episodes in the court's history. Uh, you know, I was sitting in my office the afternoon of the oral argument, listening to the audio of the oral arguments on, I think, the, the second day, the big day when the uh, constitutionality of the individual mandate was discussed. And I happened to open up uh, a Twitter on my computer, uh, one of the relatively few social networking sites that isn't blocked at my law firm. And, uh, you know, if you typed in healthcare or Solicitor General or Paul Clement or any sort of relevant keywords, there would just be hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, uh, hits and sort of stuff coming up every few seconds. And it's really hard to uh, kind of think of a Supreme Court case that compares because the healthcare cases really were uh, the first major uh, uh, cases of that magnitude, at least in the, in the kind of internet era. Uh, uh, and certainly probably the biggest cases with the possible exception of Bush versus Gore over the course of my own career. So uh, in talking about next term, there's kind of an after the flood sense uh, of what's going to come next. And I think what's going to come next uh, you know, are a series of quite substantial cases. I'm not sure that any of them uh, in and of itself is going to measure up to the healthcare cases in terms of the level of public attention. Uh, but there are cases on uh, affirmative action, race, same-sex marriage, uh, uh, and potentially other uh, issues that I think are going to definitely be uh, front page stories for David uh, uh, in the course of, of the next year. Uh, I'm not sure any of the cases that I'm going to discuss uh, quite rises to that level. Um, but of course, uh, the night is still young, and the Supreme Court has filled uh, a little bit less than half of its docket for the upcoming year. So. Uh, to some extent, uh, this is going to be a predictive exercise where all three of us uh, attempt to guess what cases are going to land on the court's docket uh, in addition to the cases that are already there. Uh, I'm going to focus primarily on the Fourth Amendment. And as someone who has 
uh, argued Fourth Amendment cases in the court uh, in the past and has uh, therefore perhaps paid uh, particular attention to that corner of the court's docket, it kind of never ceases to amaze me that the Supreme Court finds uh, er seemingly every year at least two or three uh, Fourth Amendment cases to put on its docket. Now, to be sure, uh, the court uh, sometimes will confront issues involving uh, the application of familiar Fourth Amendment principles to uh, new technologies. So last term, the Supreme Court had uh, the United States versus Jones case, which involved uh, GPS tracking devices. I'm not sure that anyone under the age of, of 40 would view GPS tracking devices as a truly new technology, uh, but uh, certainly by Supreme Court standards, uh, they qualified. And uh, there's at least one case potentially on the horizon that involves uh, uh, new technologies. But uh, in terms of the Fourth Amendment cases that are already on the court's docket, I think it's fair to say uh, that all of them involve uh, old technologies. And uh, I, I guess I promised that I would slip in at least one canine joke since we're going to be talking about dog sniffs. But I think this really is the year that the Supreme Court goes to the dogs because the court has no fewer than two cases involving uh, the application of the Fourth Amendment to dog sniffs. And in a perhaps a, an intentional or unintentional act of humor, the clerk's office has set uh, both of those cases for oral argument on Halloween. So the court is going to have kind of a, a, a Fourth Amendment day on Halloween with these two cases involving dog sniffs. And a further peculiarity is that these two cases actually both come from uh, the state of Florida. They both come from the Florida Supreme Court. So the state of Florida is actually the petitioner uh, in both of the cases that the court's going to hear. Uh, of those two uh, uh, canine cases, I think the case that's probably of greater interest is a case called Florida versus Jardines, which involves the question of whether the police can use a dog to sniff the exterior of a house. Um, I believe in Jardines, the dog was literally sniffing the front door of the house. Uh, and this is done, of course, in order to determine whether or not there is a contraband in the house. And it's kind of an interesting case because it really involves the intersection of two basic Fourth Amendment principles. It's pretty well settled that a dog sniff ordinarily does not constitute a search and thereby, uh, and therefore does not require any additional level of individualized suspicion. And in a series of cases involving searches in public places, uh, the Supreme Court has so held. So if uh, a dog comes up to you as you're waiting for uh, your luggage, and, and to make it simpler for Fourth Amendment purposes, we'll posit that you're waiting for your luggage from a domestic flight. Uh, a, a dog can come up to you without more uh, and, and sniff your luggage, and if uh, contraband is found, uh, you uh, potentially will be subject to arrest. The question in the Jardines case is whether that analysis is somehow different when the home is the context involved. And some of you will recall that uh, the Supreme Court in a case called Kylo about 10 years ago uh, held that the use of a thermal imaging device, a device that is used to sense heat emanating from a house, which is potentially a sign of uh, uh, the growth of uh, illegal substances within the house, uh, does constitute uh, a search uh, for Fourth Amendment purposes. And that opinion was written by uh, an interesting majority of Justice Scalia joined by uh, some of the court's so-called liberal members uh, uh, in reaching the conclusion that uh, uh, that constitutes a search because of the kind of enhanced nature of the technology. 
And so the question that's presented in Jardines is really which of these two Fourth Amendment principles is going to be controlling. Is this controlled by the general principle that dog sniffs are uh, okay without more, or is the fact that it's being used in the context of the home sufficient to render the analysis different? Uh, the other uh, dog case is a case called Florida versus Harris. Uh, it presents a, a somewhat more technical question about kind of the degree of qualification that a dog has to have in order to give rise to probable cause. And so the question in the case is whether it is sufficient uh, to kind of present a, a certificate, kind of the equivalent of a doggy diploma that indicates that the dog has been uh, trained and that the dog is sufficiently well-trained and reliable, or whether uh, the government has to make a more detailed uh, showing, which is what the Florida Supreme Court uh, required. And again, those cases are going to be argued back to back on Halloween. The other Fourth Amendment case that's currently on the court's docket is uh, actually a case that I'm going to be arguing on behalf of the defendant the day before. So it really is going to be not just Fourth Amendment day, but Fourth Amendment week uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, and it involves um, one of those questions that you might have thought would have long since been settled, but in fact uh, hasn't been, as the existence of a conflict in the Court of Appeals on the question indicates. Uh, it involves um, one of the relatively few categorical rules that the Supreme Court has formulated under the Fourth Amendment, the rule of a case called Michigan versus Summers, uh, which held that uh, the police have the authority to detain the occupants of a house incident to the execution of a search warrant, regardless of the degree of individualized suspicion during the duration of the execution of the search. And that's a rule that the Supreme Court uh, adopted because of concerns for officer safety and out of a desire to ensure the orderly completion of the search. Well, uh, our case, Bailey versus United States, presents the question of how far that rationale extends. And so in our case, uh, the police were about to execute the search warrant at a house, saw two individuals leaving the house, and they were surveilling the house uh, uh, seemingly undercover when they saw these individuals leave. And they proceeded to follow the individuals for a mile away from the house to detain the individuals and then to bring them back to the house, invoking the rule of Michigan versus Summers. And the question is whether the justifications for the categorical rule support an extension of the rule to a situation in which the individuals were detained uh, away from the house and really before the police uh, commence the execution of the search warrant. And uh, as with all of these cases, I'd really uh, send you to Tom's blog if you're interested in the cases in greater detail, uh, where you can find uh, the briefs that have been filed to date. Uh, the Cato Institute filed a, a very interesting amicus brief together with the ACLU, uh, uh, prepared by Catherine Carroll and others at Wilmer Hale uh, that supported the position of our client uh, and argued that the categorical rule should not be extended uh, to this situation. Uh, there is yet a fourth Fourth Amendment case or issue that could potentially land on the court's docket. Uh, this is another case uh, in which we're involved uh, as co-counsel with the Maryland Public Defender's Office, and I see that Stephen Mercer is in the audience today. Uh, it's a case called Maryland versus King, and it presents the application of traditional Fourth Amendment principles in the evolving conte context of the collection and testing of DNA evidence. This is a case involving a Maryland statute that provides for the collection and testing of DNA from individuals who have been arrested but not yet convicted of a crime. 
for the purpose of investigating uh, other crimes. So in this case, uh, our client, Alonzo King, was arrested for assault. His DNA was uh, test collected and then tested, and that evidence was used in connection with the prosecution for a rape. And the question is whether uh, that is permissible under the Fourth Amendment, and it's a, a, an issue that presents a number of interesting subsidiary Fourth Amendment questions. The Maryland Court of Appeals, the highest state court, uh, held that there was a Fourth Amendment violation in this case. The state of Maryland has filed uh, a petition for certiorari, uh, which we have not yet responded to. Uh, but the Chief Justice uh, did issue a stay pending the disposition of the cert petition, which indicates that at least the Chief Justice thinks that there is a fair probability that the petition for review uh, will be granted. And without uh, uh, giving too much of a preview of, of what we're going to say in our response to the petition for certiorari, I would just say that there is some degree of disagreement in the lower courts, but I think it's fair to say uh, that there has been relatively little written, at least at the level of state Supreme Courts and federal courts of appeals on this specific issue. There's actually a case that's going to be argued uh, bank in the Ninth Circuit tomorrow that presents similar issues. So I think it's fair to say that the law uh, is still developing in the lower courts. Uh, the only other thing that I would mention very quickly is that there are two cases on the court's docket that present an issue of some practical significance, which is whether uh, capital defendants have a right to be competent during habeas corpus proceedings. Um, the cases are, I believe, Ryan and Tibbles. I believe they are also going to be argued uh, back to back. Uh, and I believe they're going to be argued next month. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that there is a right uh, to essentially be competent at the point of execution in a case called Ford versus Wainwright. Uh, but the Supreme Court has never confronted, and of course there's a right to be uh, competent at the time of trial, but the Supreme Court has never really spoken on the question of whether there's a right to competence in between uh, two lower courts. I believe the Ninth and the Sixth Circuits held that there is such a right, uh, albeit uh, resting on very different grounds. And so I think that as a practical matter, uh, those are cases that may be reasonably significant. So I think with that, I will hand off uh, to my colleagues to talk about the civil part of the court's docket. Uh, thank you so much. It is always a great pleasure to be here at Cato. I, like so many people before me, congratulate uh, Cato for putting on such a wonderful event and Ilya for running this panel and this fantastic facility, uh, which is my first opportunity to visit. And uh, if you are watching by video, you should definitely come see the real thing in person. Um, I am going to talk about the business docket. And while it's the case that the criminal docket uh, can touch those of us who are criminal defendants, um, which is only half of us probably, the, uh, <laughs> or those of us who simply care about our relationship with the government when it comes to our individual privacy. You know, when can the government have a dog uh, sniffing us in the airport, our homes, that sort of thing. It is relatively less common that the business cases touch us so individually and so personally. And so I'm going to cover 10 cases, six cases that are on the merits docket and four cert petitions. And I'm going to try and do them in relatively summary form because the main event is not only what Cannon talked about, but the big, sexy, interesting cases that David's going to talk about. So I'm going to frame the business docket for you uh, and so that you have a sense of what's going on in the assumption that 
uh, a lot of these cases won't have immediate direct influence on your life. I will give you, as the best illustration of that principle, the Kiobel case. And so I'm going to describe for you the allegations of the complaint. And if this has happened to you, raise your hand, and we'll talk at greater length. The <laughs> plaintiffs allege that um, a, an overseas oil company conspired with the military government of Nigeria to involve the Nigerian government in uh, uh, kind of putting down the opposition to oil field development in Nigeria. And so if that has happened to you, okay, that was kind of my guess. It is an important controversy in American law. The alien tort statute says that aliens can bring tort suits in US courts is a really old statute. And uh, the basis for the lawsuit has to be a violation by some uh, party of a basic principle of international law or a treaty to which the United States has subscribed. Um, the Court of Appeals decided this case, which is the Nigerians versus the overseas oil company, Royal Dutch Shell, on the ground that the statute doesn't apply to companies. And the Supreme Court had agreed to decide last term that interesting question, and that is, can you bring these uh, alien tort suits against companies. And in the middle of the case, it became apparent that there was another, perhaps bigger issue lurking in the case. And that is, does the statute apply extraterritorially? Because this is a case that's brought by foreigners against a foreign company about something that happened overseas. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court was asked to decide, does this statute overcome the ordinary presumption in American law that American law applies to stuff that happens here? Uh, and if Congress wants it to apply to stuff that happens in other places or exclusively happens in other places, it says so expressly. And so the Supreme Court, a few days after oral argument in the Kiobel case, said, we're going to start again, come back next term. And the Supreme Court will hear argument this term on the extraterritoriality question. And if it decides that the statute applies extraterritorially, then it will decide the question it had originally agreed to hear about whether the ATS applies to companies. The Obama administration has filed a brief that says maybe. Uh, it says that at least when it comes to a suit like this one, which involves an allegation by foreigners against a foreign sovereign, this involves uh, a conspiracy allegedly involving the Nigerian government, uh, about events that happen entirely overseas, uh, that the statute should not be read to apply. But the administration walking back earlier positions that earlier government briefs had set, had uh, their position uh, said sometimes the ATS can apply uh, to overseas extraterritorial con territorial conduct. So it's not clear what line exactly the Supreme Court will draw. They defer a lot to the position of the government in cases like this because these cases involve the foreign affairs relationships of the United States. So the Solicitor General's brief certainly will be important. Um, it seems unlikely that the plaintiffs will prevail in this Supreme Court on this allegation, but it is a important and recurring uh, controversy that a lot of companies face, not a lot, but a fair number of companies face very significant human rights uh, lawsuits. Uh, and this is going to be the Supreme Court case that decides whether those can go forward. The Supreme Court is going to also take up the echoes of the famous Walmart versus Dukes case from a couple of terms ago in two merits cases this term. Walmart was most famous for dealing with the question of basically, can you have a class action that involves many hundreds of thousands of people there 
uh, female employees of Walmart who were supervised by lots of different people in lots of different stores, do they have the commonality to produce a single class action so that you can litigate all of your claims against Walmart together? That issue is not, an issue, that is not going to come up this term in the Supreme Court, but there is a little piece of Walmart that is, and that is the Supreme Court in the Walmart case said, it kind of pointed in the direction of there are more merits-type issues that should be decided at the beginning of a class action rather than the late in class action. So just to detour for a section about, second about class action procedure, what happens in these cases is that under Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, what you're supposed to do is you, as a judge is you decide whether or not this group of people that's supposed to be the plaintiffs have a common enough set of issues to justify them all litigating together. Defendants really fear these uh, class actions because they produce the possibility of huge damage awards, potentially inducing very large settlements. Sometimes they can be very unwieldy, but they can be incredibly important for civil rights litigation. So the two follow-on cases this term are called Amgen and Comcast. Amgen is a case about securities litigation. It is a case that involves the so-called fraud on the market theory of securities litigation. And the idea here is that the Supreme Court has said you can have a class action that says even though each individual investor in a company may have to prove its, his or her reliance, I saw some misstatement by the company and therefore I bought the stock or I didn't sell the stock, even though that might be regarded as an individual uh, fact rather than a common fact that a class would ordinarily litigate, under the, the notion of an efficient market, the Supreme Court's going to allow the courts to assume that material information that goes out into the marketplace will be relied on by potential investors. And that allows these cases to be litigated on an, on an aggregate by all the investors, securities fraud cases like this, rather than each single investor having to file a securities fraud case. And several things it is settled should be decided by the judge before the class action gets underway, including whether there is an efficient market and whether there was a misstatement that was made that was public. The Supreme Court is taking up in this case the question of whether the misstatement that was made was material. Should that be decided at the beginning of the case or later in the case, and that can make a big difference. Again, just in the general notion of class actions, the more the defendants can force the, the courts to decide early on rather than later, the better chance they have of cutting off the class action at the beginning. Same sort of deal in the Comcast case. I should bracket that I play a role in this case on behalf of the plaintiffs. In Comcast, the question is, this is an antitrust suit. The plaintiffs challenge Comcast's uh, dominating the market for cable in and around Philadelphia. And the question in the Comcast case is, before the class is certified in the case, should the district judge be deciding uh, whether there are going to be class-wide damages available? Can all the people who are supposed to be in this class receive damages on a common basis, or should, again, the case be litigated on a one-off uh, individualized basis? So these are just follow-on important lawyers' cases uh, for the proceedings in class actions, which are significant uh, issues for the business community. Um, another antitrust case is FTC versus Phoebe Putney. Again, on the question of whether this touches you individually, have any of you opened and then sold a countywide hospital system? No? Okay, well, we'll deal with this more quickly. Uh, the question in the FTC versus Phoebe Putney case is when the state gives a county the power to create a hospital system, right? Very common. 
is it thereby conferring antitrust immunity? And the idea here is the Supreme Court has said that there's the Sherman Act, the big federal antitrust law, but if the state itself passes a law that creates a regulatory scheme that will be anti-competitive, because states set up regimes that don't require competition all the time, sometimes they require cooperation, then the resulting business activity may have state antitrust immunity. You can't sue them under the Sherman Act. And the question here is, when the state says to a county, you can create a hospital system, is it thereby creating antitrust immunity if the hospital system in integrates itself in a way, is sold in a way, that creates a monopoly uh, in the local area? Uh, a moderately important question of antitrust law. Something a little bit closer to home, perhaps, is the Vance case. This is a civil rights case, an issue that arises in a lot of, under a lot of civil rights statutes, and that's, civil, that's supervisor liability. The idea here is that if you are going to sue your employer, you can sue the employer for something that the management does, obviously, but you can't really sue the employer for something that a coworker does to you because the coworker doesn't have responsibility for you. It may be their own individual action. It's not company policy. In between the two of those things, there is supervisor liability, and that is the company can be held liable for its officers that direct the operations of the employees. The question is, what does it mean to be a supervisor? Does it have to be someone who can hire and fire and supervise? So for example, Cannon is the supervisor of Ilya's girlfriend, okay? Because he can fire her, and so we should all be very careful about that. The, um, <laughs> but what is it, you know, what kind of authority is required in order to trigger that supervisor liability? Is it just that I can tell you what to do, or is it that more direct ability uh, to control every aspect of their lives, their happiness, and really their future in the firm altogether? <laughs> uh, that's, that's the issue. You know, Tom, over the last 30 seconds, I've been paying a lot closer yes, attention it is, to you. <laughs> Right, and so have your other partners. It's a question of their corporate liability. Um, I'm just waiting to get to the ERISA case, like everybody else in the, the room. ERISA case. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the ERISA case, uh, which I hadn't even planned on talking about, but it's so exciting. Um, the ERISA case is called U.S. Airways versus McCutcheon. It involves the question of this can happen to you. Uh, you are a member of an ERISA plan. You probably, you may even know that you're a member of an ERISA plan. You may have a health benefit plan. You may have a pension plan and like. This usually comes up in the health context where you are injured, you get health benefits, but then you sue someone who's responsible because none of us actually cause accidents. The other person's at fault and we recover some amount of money from them. The question in US Airways is the ability of the plan to recoup that money from you in particular, in a situation where, for example, you get a $20,000 recovery, but your lawyer, as the Constitution requires, takes most of it. Your lawyer <laughs> takes, you know, say only an 80% contingency, and so you have $4,000 left, right? Can the US Airways in this situation come and take the whole $20,000 from you as recoupment, even though you don't actually have all of that money. That's the, the famous ERISA case. The last business case that I'll mention. And the answer is that U.S. Airways lawyer gets that. Yes, U.S. lawyer. <laughs> uh, uh, all, all good things end with the, a check to a lawyer. Um, the last case that I will mention that's on the docket before turning to four SIR petitions is Arkansas Game and Fish. I ask you again, do any of you all have tens of thousands of acres of land that are flooded on a recurring basis by the federal government? Okay, 
Uh, this is a very unusual audience. Um, <laughs> why are you here? The, uh, the, uh, the question is, what is the Supreme Court doing taking these cases, perhaps? The, uh, the question in the Arkansas Game and Fish case is, is the, the constitutional principle at stake is very important, the takings clause. Because the government, either physically or through regulatory action, can come and take our property. And if so, the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution requires that they pay us just compensation. It's frequently disputed whether the government has actually taken the property. This is an interesting little puzzle. Every year for the past six years, various government projects have flooded this land. But then, as waterers want to do, it goes away. And then the next year, it comes back. And the government says, well, you know, when the water goes away, you can have your land back. We only take your property when we come in and the water either stays there or we put a tank on it. You know, what, until we've really come along and taken the thing. And there are old, some old Supreme Court cases that have language in them that suggest that permanent flooding is the only thing that will trigger a, a takings violation. The, the position of the petitioners is basically, oh, come on. Uh, we don't get to use the land. Every friggin' year, we come along, and, we, and it's like eight feet of water on it because of the stupid federal government's project. They eventually have taken our property. And the question is whether or not that's a compensable taking. Uh, the four pending business-related cert petitions, one is one where Cannon has filed an interesting uh, and important cert petition. I represent the respondents uh, on behalf of truth. Uh, and <laughs> the basic. Do we have a spontaneous moot court here? Okay. I mean, no. the, the, uh, the, the, the issue is as follows, and I'll give you the context because if you go do more than context, you end up characterizing it one way or the other. Um, their drug companies have patents, they invest a lot of money in getting their products to market. There's a statutory scheme that encourages generic drug companies to challenge either the validity of the patent or whether their products would infringe the patent. And these disputes, like many disputes, get settled. These disputes are settled in a somewhat unusual way sometimes with the brand name agreeing to a number of factors, including a payment to the generic company to defer its entry. In, and as a result of the settlement, it defers its entry into the market. And the question is, at what point and to what extent are agreements like that subject to antitrust scrutiny or not? The majority rule is that they are not subject to antitrust scrutiny, the theory being that the very notion of a patent, the brand name has a patent here, is to be able to exclude competition. There's nothing unlawful about that. The story of the other side is that, well, you are really going beyond, in a sense, the patent right because the patent is being challenged here, and you are preventing competition. And so. Uh, Cannon says, and a court of appeals has said, and various observers have said, and the government has said, that there is a circuit conflict about that question. And this is a question the Supreme Court has seen several times, and they may step in and decide that uh, this year. Three other uh, cases relatively quickly. RJR has a cert petition about the rules for definiteness in patent law. There is a standard in the federal patent statutes that says if you are going to get a patent, you have to definitely explain what it is that you have a patent for. The reason is so that I, as somebody who might make a similar product, will know what it is that I can't do, and I know what invention has been created. And the RJR says in this case that the standard that the federal circuit, which has exclusive jurisdiction of these cases, <laughs> applies is that to be definite, it has to be comprehensible. Like, we have some sense, and if we had a big trial about it, then we could figure it out. And RGR says that's not good enough. Um, there is a very interesting cert petition filed by the Agency for International Development about a statute that says if you are going to get 
aids funding, you have to have a policy that opposes sex trafficking. Now, one would think that would be not that controversial. I don't know a lot of organizations that are like, go sex trafficking. But it does raise an interesting uh, First Amendment question of whether the government can say to you, look, you have to express a particular point of view, or whether that's OK because it's part of a government funding program. So that's a, just an interesting con law kind of question. And the last case that I'll mention is the Mount Holly case. This is a successor to a case that uh, I had done last year but was uh, resolved when the other side gave up, um, uh, not for any reason having to do with me. Uh, the question is, under the Fair Housing Act, which is a major piece of civil rights legislation that deals with how it is that you sell housing in the country, but is often invoked, for example, to allege that lenders are only offering particular rates to particular neighborhoods and also to people of particular races, whether you can bring a disparate impact claim under the Federal Fair Housing Act, the difference between a disparate impact claim and a disparate treatment claim is disparate impact is discrimination that's unintentional. And that is, you have some policy that has an adverse effect on a protected class, say a minority. And even if you didn't intend to discriminate against them, nonetheless, what you've done is illegal. And uh, disparate impact claims are anathema to many conservatives on the Supreme Court, perhaps five of them, uh, which it turns out is all you need. Uh, and uh, the, But the Supreme Court has not considered the question whether such a claim is available under the Fair Housing Act. So that's the current business docket and what I expect to be the business docket. Uh, and thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, I had uh, offered to arm wrestle Tom earlier over Arkansas game and fish. Uh, but after talking with him, I realized he was so heavily invested. <laughs> and the same with the Cannon and the uh, dog sniff cases. Uh, <laughs> They have left for me the uh, cases, the important cases involving race uh, and uh, gay rights. So uh, thanks, guys. Um, they have a big, there's a big college affirmative action case on in October. You've probably read about it. This is the latest iteration of a very old question. Can the government, in this case a state university, give an advantage to a student because of his or her race to give sort of an edge to uh, black or Hispanic students in the interest of diversity um, changing the university? Or does that violate the rights of a white student who says, I was denied the equal protection of the laws? Um, the interesting twist in this case, and what, what you really should watch, is the question of the so-called race-neutral alternatives. About 15 years ago, 1997, a federal appeals court in Texas had said, you may not use race for uh, affirmative action at the University of Texas. The state legislature, a Mexican-American woman in the state legislature, sponsored a bill, eventually passed, signed into law by then-Governor George Bush, that said the state is going to grant automatic admission to its public universities, including UT Austin, for the top 10% graduates in all of its high schools all across the state. And this uh, really transformed education in Texas. Now, Mexican-American kids in the Rio Grande Valley, African-American students in Houston or Dallas, uh, rural white kids across Texas suddenly had an opportunity to go to UT Austin. And over time, 
the, the, the percentage of minority students coming into UT Austin steadily uh, rose. A classic race-neutral alternative. That is, those kids were getting in because they did very well in high school. But in 2004, after the Supreme Court had narrowly upheld uh, race-based affirmative action in the University of Michigan case, Texas announced that they were going to go back to using race, but for a very limited part of the class. It's only about a quarter of the freshman class. So three quarters of the kids come in under the race neutral plan, the top, it's now called the top 8% plan, they've scaled it back a little bit. One quarter come into this under this so-called holistic review where the university says, we're gonna consider a whole lot of things about a student. We want to be able to have some discretion to pick our students. And the university says, you know, if we get a kid who's interested in architecture or music or plays the oboe, we wanna be able to choose that kid. So they are now defending the use of race for a limited part of the class. So this is how the case arises. After that happens, a young woman named Abigail Fisher was turned down in 2008. She's a white student, Sugarland, Texas. Strikes me as a good but not excellent. She had good grades but not excellent grades. She didn't get the top 10% of her class. And um, she's the kind of student who could have got in, but as I say, was turned down. So she sued and says, I was discriminated against. Um, I wouldn't think she'd have a very strong claim, but she does, she does, is able to say, Texas has a process where race plays a role, and therefore I was discriminated against. Um, the Fifth Circuit, the federal courts in Texas upheld the Texas policy because they said, well, look, the Supreme Court has already said in the Michigan case, you can consider race in a very limited way, Texas is doing that. But the Supreme Court then granted it, and this is a really interesting case because the middle vote now is Justice Kennedy. It used to be Justice O'Connor, she's gone. Justice Kennedy has dissented in every affirmative action case, every race case, but he said in 2003- Dissented in all of them upholding the programs. Pardon me? Dissented in all of them upholding the programs. Yes, he's always finally opposed any use of race. But in 2003, in the uh, Grutter case, he wrote that he could accept Justice Powell's notion going way back that a university could consider race as one modest factor. But then he said, before we approve a, a, a race-based admission scheme, that was his phrase, we should seriously force universities to consider race-based alternatives. Race-neutral alternatives. I'm sorry, race-neutral alternatives. Um, so that's essentially where we are now. That is, here's a situation where Texas has a race-neutral alternative that's brought a significant number of minority students in. The university is saying we should be able to um, go further and consider race. One thing that surprised me, and uh, I was down to Texas and talked to people about the case, is that overwhelmingly the minority students who come into Texas come in under the automatic admission. It's, it's been nine out of 10 in some years. And in, in, in 2011, 36% of the kids who came under the automatic admit were Hispanic or black. Under the holistic review, it was about 17 or 18%. 
So Texas is actually, <laughs> the minority students are actually doing much better under the automatic review um, policy. So I don't know what the court's gonna do with this, but I think the really interesting thing to watch is if Justice Kennedy and the conservative justices say something like, you, you as a university can't have a race-based affirmative action plan if a race-neutral policy could work. And that, that would be, uh, could have an interesting impact around the country. You could write an opinion that's a Texas-only case. Some people say Texas is the only one that's had this much success. But it's the real interesting twist to, uh, to watch in that case. The other big race issue is the Voting Rights Act and Section 5. Um, you, you know what this is about. I mean, since 1965, the South, essentially the South, has been under a sort of special scrutiny. You can't change your election laws, you can't change your voting rights laws until you get a preclearance from Washington, a federal court or the Justice Department. And um, the question is, is that policy so outdated and so unfair to the southern states that it should be essentially struck down. And uh, it strikes me as that the five justices are going to be inclined to think, as they've sort of hinted, hinted before, wait a minute, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin can pass voter ID laws, and those laws can go into effect, even though they may have a real impact on poor and minority voters. But South Carolina and Texas have been blocked from having the identical laws. And I think it's going to be very hard for the defenders of the coverage formula, that is, the formula that says only these southern states are under this rubric, to defend that when it seems that Ohio and Pennsylvania have the same sort of voting problems that Texas or South Carolina does. The court's got a a couple pending cases coming their way on that. I think the general view is they're, they're certainly going to hear one of those cases, and, and I would think that there's a better than average chance that the uh, Section 5 is going to be limited or struck down or something to say it's outdated. The other uh, big case that we're confident, pretty confident that they're going to take is the Gay Rights and the Defensive Marriage Act. It, this is not a question of whether gays can marry in states. The question is, in states where gay marriage is legal, do those married gay couples have a right to equal benefits under federal law? The First Circuit Court up in New England, acting on a suit brought by several gay couples in Massachusetts. They were legally married in Massachusetts, but yet they can't file a joint federal tax return. Or if one woman works for the Postal Service and her uh, spouse is at home, can she be on the health care plan? This is a question of equal treatment for legally married gay couples. I think it's very likely the court's going to take this case, and I think it's very likely, I, th I think, you'd, that Justice Kennedy and the more liberal justices, and who knows who else, are going to rule that says this denies these legally married gay couples the equal protection of the laws. And as I say, it, nothing about that opinion necessarily says whether gays have a right to marry in Mississippi or Nebraska. It's only those states where um, gay marriage is legal. But um, that should be one of the really interesting, important cases because 
another thing to watch for, the Supreme Court has never exactly said what's the standard of review when there's discrimination against gays. And in this case, they, they may be called upon to decide, say something about, is discrimination against gays generally unconstitutional, or is it generally okay? They've never quite said. And so that's another thing to watch for in um, this case. Defense of Marriage Act um, will be up decided later, later on in this uh, term. So I think I'll stop right there. Probably. Thank you. Do you have anything else to add before we move to questions? I mean, I think it's probably just worth mentioning as a coda to what David just said, that there is also the petition pending before the Supreme Court on the constitutionality of Proposition 8. This is the challenge uh, in which uh, Ted Olson and David Boyce represent uh, a, a couple who, a same-sex couple who wish to be married in California, and that case more squarely presents the question of whether there is a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, and that case just happens to be on more or less the same timetable as these cases involving the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. So I think the really interesting question is going to be uh, which of all of these cases the Supreme Court the Supreme Court takes, and whether the Supreme Court might, for instance, take one or more of the cases involving the Defense of Marriage Act and then hold the Proposition 8 case pending the disposition of those cases, or whether the Supreme Court is just going to let a thousand flowers bloom and take all of these cases together. And we'll know the answer to that, I would think, reasonably soon. I, I, my personal opinion is that the Prop 8 case is less likely to be taken just because Reinhardt, the Ninth Circuit judge who wrote the opinion, um, you know, a favorite uh, scourge of, of conservatives, certainly, but he wrote it in a, in a manner that reads like a California and Prop 8 specific uh, case, so there's, uh, it's easier for the justices to decide that if they want to dodge the, this bullet right now, it, uh, they could, I think, more easily than, the, than some of the DOMA cases. Questions? And I should uh, announce before that immediately following questions, when this panel concludes, we're going to move straight to the Simon Lecture, so please uh, stay in your seats uh, at that time. Questions? Manny. Thank you. Manny Klausner from the Reason Foundation and from the Individual Rights Foundation. I have a question concerning the Fisher case for any of the panelists who might want to comment, and that is, what impact do you think would be played by the showing that's been made, I know in some of the amicus briefs, and I believe one of the party briefs, about the empirical work of uh, Richard Sander at UCLA showing the um, impact of allowing students on, who are affirmative action admittees, whether because they're a legacy affirmative action admittees or racial or sex-based uh, uh, admittees, that if their GPA and their SAT scores are significantly lower than their colleagues and their entering class, the odds are many of them will drop out, flunk out, or do very badly. So there's really a, a new uh, empirical showing that affirmative action admittees may be paying a huge price because the law, the law or the statute that lets them come in without the qualifications of their peers uh, is counterproductive and they do less well than if they went to, a, say, a, a second-tier school uh, not quite as good as University of Texas. Anyone want to comment on that, the mismatch theory? Well, I, I find it, well, it, it certainly is a, a brief and a, and a, and a set of um, 
studies that would make some people who are a little bit skeptical of affirmative action think, geez, this is not even helping the kids it's supposed to help. But um, the reason I don't think it'll have a big, is, is I think there are five skeptics of affirmative action already on the Supreme Court, uh, several defenders. So I, I think it's an interesting, interesting research. I don't necessarily think it'll change much at the Supreme Court. I actually read the book yesterday on the plane, and it's, it's just tremendous stuff. I, I commend the book to you. It's called Mismatch by Stuart Taylor and, and uh, Richard Sander. Uh, but I, I, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, you could see an opinion that already goes against Texas also throwing in a sentence, and this doesn't even help people see you know, this amicus brief or something like that, but probably won't turn on that. Great. I think the only other thing I would say about Fisher more generally, and this is not quite germane to your question, but I'll say it anyway, is that, you know, I do think that it's interesting in looking at the merits briefs just how um, clearly they're targeted at Justice Kennedy, given the fact that, as David noted, Justice Kennedy has, at least certainly not in recent times, ever voted to sustain an affirmative action program. Someone told me that there's something like 50 name checks to Justice Kennedy in the party's briefs alone. And so uh, clearly people are picking up on the language from uh, his opinion in, in Grutter on uh, sort of race-neutral alternatives and attempting to kind of turn that to their advantage. But for what it's worth, and I, I'm usually hesitant to make predictions about outcomes in Supreme Court cases, I do think this is one area in which the changes, the recent changes in the court's membership really do have the potential to make an outcome dispositive difference. I mean, there's a sense in which the recent replacements have, in a very broad sense, been like for like. On the issue of race, I don't think that that's true. And with the effective replacement of Justice O'Connor with Justice Alito, you know, I really do think that the writing is probably on the wall in this case. I, I would say that I agree the, the handwriting is on the wall on the issue. You know, there have been a number of things where Justice Kennedy was in dissent on an important question when Justice O'Connor was on the court. And the, and the Supreme Court has been revisiting a lot of them since Justice Alito was appointed. This case has the odd feature of the principal plaintiff having graduated from college. And so there is a weird overlay on this case of its procedural posture and whether it's moot. Uh, it, the court took the case fully aware of that fact after long consideration. Uh, but one possible outcome of this case is that it turns into a nothing burger because the court decides it's an inappropriate vehicle to decide the issue. But this question is coming, as are other important questions like religion that the court's going to revisit in the post-O'Connor era. And of course, the court could just reconstrue the racial preferences as a tax. And <laughs> <laughs> More questions? Another in the front row. Just very quickly, on the defense of marriage cases that are coming up, will this, will the full faith and credit clause be impacted at all, or will this just be a matter of federal benefits? Well, no, remember there was two parts of the Defense of Marriage Act. When it was originally passed in 1996, all the talk then was this question of um, the fear that um, if one state has gay marriage, all the other laws are going to fall like dominoes. You know, that is, Massachusetts is going to have gay marriage, and two guys are going to get married in Boston, then they're going to move to Baton Rouge and, and go to federal court and say, hey, you need to honor our marriage, full faith and credit. So Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act initially to say states need not um, recognize uh, 
same-sex marriages from other states. But that issue is not being challenged in, that, in this case. So that part of the law stands. This is only the federal benefits part of the law. Well, I have a question um, about Kiobel, uh, Tom. I don't know if you uh, care to speculate about why uh, Harold Coe, the State Department legal advisor who signed the first brief for the government in the case, uh, on the re-argument, on the supplemental briefing, his name does not appear. Do you think he's uh, you know, paving his way back to academia or, or, or something, or he just disagrees minutely? Or Well, this is kind of one of the inside baseball, Washington, D.C. sorts of things, where on briefs of the government, the Solicitor General's office will file the brief, and it'll be signed by the Solicitor General and people in the Solicitor General's office. And agencies or departments of the executive branch that are heavily involved in the case will very frequently sign the brief as well. Uh, and as was mentioned, when this case came around the first time, the State Department signed the brief and uh, an indication of the State Department, A, believing that the foreign policy interests of the United States were heavily implicated, and B, that they agreed with the brief that was filed. Now, the importance of the case to international relations hasn't gone down. The ready inference from the fact that the State Department's legal advisor not signing, didn't sign on to the brief is that the State Department, or at least the legal advisor, doesn't agree with the brief. But that's just an inference, no matter how powerful. <laughs> You'll let us know when you get the leak, right? Uh, my name is Paul Jossi. I'm with DB Capital Strategies. Uh, I have a question about the, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, in and, and he's a former Cato I, legal associate, so if his, I am very, his very proudly is good, so. then I claim him. If not, then uh, well, <laughs> he's no longer here. Uh, I have a question about, uh, there was a gentleman talking about uh, empirical evidence, and uh, I, in Shelby County, uh, the, the Judge Williams in his dissent, I, I thought, laid out some pretty powerful empirical evidence uh, as to... Uh, the formula that was used and the criteria that was used uh, dating back to 1973 and how there's just simply no fit there uh, anymore. And uh, that was uh, not convincing to the DC circuit and I was wondering if that would be, uh, if there's any prognostications that it would be more convincing to the Supreme Court. Yes, it will be more convincing. It's also, it is a cousin of Manny's question about the misfit evidence when it comes to affirmative action and that the justices have seen section five a lot over time. Justice Kennedy has written a lot about it and has very, they have very strong views to begin with. And so it, I agree it will be more persuasive, but it's mostly gonna be confirmatory of a felt sense for many of the justices that you know, this list of the covered jurisdictions that are subject to the restrictions of section five was created in another era and when Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in Section 5 for 25 years, it didn't, oddly, the list is, seems awful lot like the old list. And uh, that there may be a misfit as well there. I don't think, if, for those justices, and there are likely at least four who strongly believe in the Section 5 procedures, I don't think this is gonna change their minds, but it may well really confirm the, the views of, of the rest of the court. As you, as you know, Section 5 and the Voting Rights Act has such an important historic impact. I think that's the main reason Congress has never quibbled with the formula and the Supreme Court stopped short of striking it down uh, three years ago. That, that that was one of the most successful, most effective laws 
in the 20th century that, that changed a situation where blacks were s simply barred from voting throughout the South, and that that's for so many years, the southern states and municipalities had so many tricky schemes to prevent blacks from voting that it seemed like the only way to do it was to put them under the federal scrutiny. But all the years down the road, it, it is much harder to say that, this, that the southern states are totally different than Ohio and Pennsylvania. I have to write about this a lot, and boy, it's hard to explain. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a decision involving Florida. Well, do you know, Florida, there are five counties in Florida that are uh, governed by Section 5, and 62 counties, the rest of the state, are not. So, so it, the, the, there was a situation about cutting back on early voting in Florida. The legislature cut back on early voting, the days for early voting. You could argue, and the, this court uh, agreed with it, that this would have a uh, a impact on minority voters who voted heavily in the weekend before. But the court that handled the case basically had to say, and in writing it, I had to try to explain it, this decision actually only affects a couple counties, and you'd be hard-pressed, even if I told you what they were, to come up, what's the common theme? You know, there's some small counties, some big, one big county, Hillsborough. It had, it, in today's world, it seemed like it made either all the state and maybe the whole country should be under this special scrutiny if you're going to come up with these laws that seem intended to to disenfranchise uh, poor people or minorities or you should lift it and none of them are but it's very hard to explain how this current formula can stay for another 25 years. It's a really bizarre list of jurisdictions. It's not just the Deep South or the, the Old Confederacy. I think six of the states of the Old Confederacy, uh, random assortment of counties in other places, uh, three counties in New York State, all boroughs in New York City. Um, uh, I wrote in, in Cato's brief, you know, there's, there's four justices from Gotham in, uh, on the court now. Maybe they can explain to the rest of us what's going on in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. That's not in Queens and Staten there Island. There are four counties in California? That's right. Monterey County, California? Yeah, and I would just add one thing on this, which is that I think that these issues with the coverage formula potentially give those members of the court who are skeptical about the validity of Section 5 a more palatable way of resolving the case because they potentially could declare the coverage formula invalid without directly invalidating Section 5 itself. And for those members of the court who are concerned about the institutional reputation of the court, an opinion that basically says, look, we're throwing this back to Congress for you to come up with a new coverage formula maybe maybe more palatable than saying to Congress, look, there's just no way of kind of skinning the Section 5 cat. And, uh, you know, I think that that is uh, potentially uh, a, a much easier way for the court to resolve the case, but one that may actually end up having essentially the same practical effect, because goodness knows it is so hard to get any legislation through uh, the current Congress to try to get the current Congress to agree on exactly which states and uh, 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 subdivisions of states are covered uh, strikes me as a, a potentially a very d difficult political task. Yes, 
uh, Walter Weber, American Center for Law and Justice. Ilya, you mentioned in your opening the scope of the treaty power. Uh, if you're referring to the Bond case, could you enlighten the audience on what that case is and why it's important to know what the answer is? Sure, I was going to get to it the next time there was a dearth of questions. This is uh, potentially, it's still on a cert petition stage, uh, a really good cert petition by Paul Clement, the Simon lecturer, who's going to be speaking very shortly. Um, it seems, uh, I joke with Paul that I make a living commenting on and filing briefs supporting his various cases. Um, he, he, of course, argues half of the Supreme Court's docket every year. Tom Goldstein gets the rest. Um, this case, uh, two years ago, uh, it's just your, just like Tom listed those cases that affect all of us, this one is your garden variety uh, case involving uh, federalism, adultery, and chemical weapons, right? Um, this woman learned that her best friend was pregnant, yay, by her husband, boo. Um, and instead of, you know, divorcing him or arguing or, you know, she does what, you know, I'm sure some of you might, might, might want to do, which is get some chemicals, not particularly novel chemicals, but she has access to, uh, a ready access to doing her work in a, in a lab. Uh, nothing, you know, too exotic or, or uh, illegal to possess, but uh, she uses these chemicals and, and puts them, sprinkles them on uh, the erstwhile best friend's mailbox, uh, the door handle to her car, some other places like this that she's likely to come in con contact with. She does get hurt, little chemical burns and whatnot, so uh, does this woman, Mrs. Bond, get charged with, uh, you know, attempted murder, assault, uh, something like this? No. She gets charged by the federal prosecutors with violating the federal statute that implements the International Treaty on Chemical Weapon Proliferation. <laughs> so the first question that, of course, comes to mind uh, the first issue that the Supreme Court has to deal with is can she even defend herself by attacking uh, the, her prosecution? Is the federal government abusing its power uh, by using this type of treaty implementing statute to, uh, to go after her? And uh, the, the federal government eventually changed its mind as, as well. They said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let her defend herself. And the court unanimously uh, issued an opinion with very strong language from, from Justice Kennedy writing for the majority, not just about that opinion, but has great language about how the structural provisions in the Constitution are there to protect liberty and, and things like this. Um, so it goes back down to the Third Circuit uh, on remand. And the Third Circuit, uh, in her, she makes the substantive argument that the federal government is effectively expanding its powers via this treaty. Without this treaty, it wouldn't be able to prosecute her. And so in effect, by, by the President signing and the Senate ratifying this treaty, and then Congress apparently gives Congress more power than it otherwise would have. And that sounds odd. You know, the federal government is supposed to have the power that the Constitution gives it, and, and that's it. Um, so she makes this argument. Unfortunately, uh, there's this short opinion um, from the 1920s called Missouri versus Holland. And of course, it's Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes that writes, well, it's not clear exactly because it's a Holmes opinion, but also it's been interpreted over the years to mean just that, a treaty can expend federal power. Um, the Third Circuit says our hands are tied. Missouri, you know, binds us. Uh, but they are reluctant to do so, and one judge, Judge Ambrose, writes separately, effectively, to ask the court to please take this up and either clarify Holland, overrule it, or, or do something. Um, and so it's in, in, in and, and that, plus Paul Clement being on the cert petition, plus Cato again filing an amicus brief, you know, hopefully it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll get up there. And, and our brief is based on and written by 
uh, based on the work of and written by uh, Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz, professor at Georgetown, who's now a, a senior fellow at Cato uh, as well, who's got this brilliant article called Executing the Treaty Power, really diving deep into the technical details about what the treaty power is all about, how it relates to federalism and the structural provisions of the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully this will go up and, and the court will, you know, in, in Robert's minimalist fashion will just say, no, you all have been misinterpreting all of Wendell Holmes the whole time. We don't need to overrule. We'll just say that, you know, it only applies to migratory birds treaties in the 20s, so. <laughs> and it's attacked. <laughs> right. There was a hand way back there before. Alexander R. Cohen, I would like to ask those with expertise in the craftsmanship of judicial opinions, whether and with expertise on the text of the Voting Rights Act, uh, if we have any such person here, uh, I'm guessing perhaps we might, whether the Voting Rights Act is written in such a way that the Supreme Court could conceivably strike down the coverage formula and leave the the rest of Section 5 standing, such that until Congress acted, the prevailing law would be that preclearance applies nationwide. I mean, I, yeah, I, mean I, I, I think the really interesting question, and I'm no expert either on the craftsmanship of judicial opinions or on the text of Section 5, but I'll take a, I'll take a, I'll, I'll take a shot at this. I mean, it seems to me that what Congress could do, or what the Supreme Court could do, is essentially to say, look, Section 5 can't really operate without a coverage formula. So, you know, while the ball is back in uh, uh, Congress's court, to mix my metaphors, the uh, Section 5 essentially cannot operate because it can't operate without a coverage formula. Now, I don't know how that dovetails with the language of the statute, but at least looking at how Supreme Court, they can find a way. I, I suspect that there is enough um, uh, flexibility in the statute to permit the court to do that. And certainly in looking at the way the case has been litigated, at least to date, there's a really heavy suggestion, even in the cert petition, that that is kind of option one for the court. Um, so I, again, I think the only awkwardness is to kind of figure out a way to kind of uh, uh, craft uh, the, the interim remedy uh, while Congress is attempting to do something, knowing that that interim remedy could turn out to be permanent if Congress, in fact, cannot come up with a new coverage formula. So it's a very interesting question, and it'll be very interesting, assuming that the court grants review on the Section 5 issue in Shelby County or one of the other cases, to see how the, the uh, litigators uh, uh, try to position that uh, uh, as a possible alternative. And for those who want to look up the text for yourself, it's Section 4B, that is the coverage formula. Uh, Joe Murphy, a uh, litigating attorney in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is a matter that uh, hasn't been uh, addressed yet, but uh, we've had a housing crisis, and there are state and county and uh, municipal governments that are beginning to tinker with uh, mortgages and underlying contracts. Uh, has uh, anyone seen any uh, cases uh, coming up that involve Article uh, 1, Section 10, 
which uh, prohibits uh, state impairment of contracts, the contracts clause. I was just going to say that there aren't any pending cert petitions on that question, so there's nothing on the on the brink that I'm aware of at the Supreme Court. There are a couple of cases winding their way through the courts uh, challenging Dodd-Frank, which isn't completely unrelated to your question. It's not, I don't think it's a contract clause claim. Uh, it's more of separation of powers and a few other things, but Boyd and Gray is heading up the litigation effort in uh, the most notable one of those, and I, I think they're still at the uh, motion practice in district court right now. And this will be the last question. Richard Samp with the Washington Legal Foundation. My question generally is about uh, uh, national security cases in the Supreme Court. Up until about 2008, we had a lot of challenges that reached the court. Since then, there really have not been any. And as a matter of fact, this term, the only case they took was the Clapper case, in which uh, it looks as though they are going to reverse a uh, lower court decision that went in favor of the plaintiffs. I was wondering if anybody wants to comment as to why the court seems much more reluctant to take cases than they did previously, uh, and if perhaps it has something to do with, with uh, uh, liberals on the court having greater faith in the Obama administration's handling of foreign policy than Bush administration. Well, clearly we've solved all of our national security problems, and that's why, uh, anyone? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I, I know that Tom's blog, at least, has reported uh, in some detail on uh, the underlying habeas litigation involving uh, detainees and uh, uh, over uh, a fair number of uh, crise de corps from various uh, lower court judges. The Supreme Court has seemingly shown no willingness to wade back into that thicket. Uh, and as you say, Rich, the only case that the court has on its docket right now is the Clapper case, which involves you know, a somewhat peripheral question about whether a particular individuals to ha have standing to challenge uh, uh, some of the procedures that are mandated by the FISA amendments. And I think that's a, you know, kind of an interesting case, but not really a big, a big ticket case. I mean, I, I, I think, I suppose one could infer from the fact that the court uh, has not uh, waded into the DTNA ca cases since Boumediene that the Supreme Court is kind of generally comfortable with the way that the DC Circuit has handled those issues. But again, that's an inference from silence because we really don't have any indication of, of whether the Supreme Court is in fact comfortable with that jurisprudence. Let's have a hand for our panel. Thank you.